Hello, uh, welcome back to We Been Had, a song-by-song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. I'm Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, yeah, today we are, we're closing out No Depression. It's a, it's a milestone here. We're finishing an album, one album down. We are going to start out talking about John Hardy, which is an album track, more or less, and then hop through the uh, bonus tracks included on the Legacy Edition. But uh, there's a couple, couple minor things we need to knock out first. So we talked about how the, uh, the Holy Grail for the show was Uncle Tupelo doing Cortez the Killer. Yes. And a, a friend of the show came through with a recording. Power so, of the internet. So what, what uh, you know, have, having looked into the face of God, <laughs> what do you think? Um, I'm tempted to say we're going to need a bigger boat. But uh, but I'm not sure how that really applies. I I guess I liked it. Um, you know, it's it, it's really very similar to the Jay Farrar cover of Like a Hurricane. Yeah. Which I guess it shouldn't be surprising. Yeah. That's another Neil Young song with a really long guitar part. But um, I guess I would have... I think I really would have liked to see it performed live. Cause it, it sounds like an, it was really an adventure when they played that song. I had the same thought. Like it was, it was great hearing it just for like, Holy shit. We, you know, <laughs> how awesome is it that we have this? But yeah, it, it seemed like it would be a great thing to experience live instead of, but that, that I mean, that's kind of live albums, you know, 90% of them. I was really hit by like, so like Neil Young has a really high voice. And Jay Farrar has a really low voice, but somehow they have the same voice, you know, like I, they just, they sound the same doing that song. Yeah. And they're both, they're both really good at singing over like heavily distorted guitar. So, you know, I think it's that, uh, I think it's that Jay Massis, uh, Jay Farrar effect where, you know, they're voices. You wouldn't say their voices are similar, but they can sound similar Yeah, just because they're both playing over this they're singing over this heavily distorted guitar yeah and uh you know funny you should mention that that was the other thing i wanted to run by it before we got into the the uh into the meat here you know we having seen dinosaur jr last week was that last week it was was last last week, week yeah um yeah it's just it was weird like I don't know. For me, like that's kind of this ongoing subplot of of doing this show is realizing how much like Dinosaur Junior Uncle Tupelo is. Yeah, uh, down to like uh, like stage presence. Yeah, like I don't think Jay Mass has said anything the entire show. He was in his little I, cocoon of amplifiers. I think you're right. And like, I'm not sure he even did. Did he even talk? I don't think he did. I don't think he said word one. Like that's Jay Farrar's dream. If he can, like, he's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta say a couple of words oh, just to keep the, just to keep the people happy. I gotta introduce these fuckers behind me. Fine. But, yeah, I mean, Mass is just like, you're not here to hear me talk. You're here to hear me play guitar and sing. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I guess he was right. We should, we should also point out that um, we saw perhaps the worst opening act I've ever seen it. First I, Avenue? I think we willed that into happening by talking about terrible first, you know, terrible opening bands that just, we made that yeah, happen. We put that out in the universe and the universe delivered. The secret is real, Chad. Jesus. <laughs> and it, interestingly, like if you had put me, given me a bio of that guy, I'd be yeah. like, yeah. Cause he's, he's like a fairly influential hardcore artist what was the band called again just to... the band was called easy action okay. but he is apparently most known for a band called negative approach yeah which uh which jay Massis said he really liked growing up and honestly all he did was scream into the microphone for 20 minutes it's weird because whenever i you know a couple of times i've tried to describe to other people who weren't there why i didn't like them and I feel like a grumpy old man, you know, being like, oh, he just screamed too much. But he just screamed too he, much. He did. I mean, none of the words were decipherable at all. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of cool. The guitar player spent the entire show with his back to the audience That's facing kind of a, his amplifier. Like, I'm not sure I've seen that before. That's that was, kind of a hero move. 
you know, that that was pretty cool. Except where he had to sing backup, and then he would tilt his head. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible for your breath control. It uh, it was something. Yeah, it was. Uh, all right. Um, want to roll with John Hardy? Let's do it. We are gonna do John Hardy. <laughs> All right. Well, John Hardy, I am. I think it's really interesting that this again was not on the original vinyl. So we we finished the vinyl album last week, and this was a, just included as a bonus track on the CD. Back when CDs were a new thing that needed special lures to get people to buy them. Just what a weird headspace that is. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder if it's because uh, the Carter family also has a version of this song. And so they didn't want to have two Carter family homages yeah. on the same on the same record. But that's a weird thing because they had to have known that the CD would be kind of the definitive. You know, it, like what you're saying is right, but it's just right for the vinyl. Uh, you know, the CD is kind of the definitive version, and and it does have. Yeah. But, but I always hear this. Just, I mean, like, yeah, there was a Carter family version. But there's also a Lead Belly version. True. And, um, you know, Wikipedia lists people. Recording yeah, it. I jotted down just some some fun ones. Uh, Manford Man <laughs> is a version. George Thorogood and the Destroyers, the Drive by Truckers, Lonnie Donegan. If you're interested in like British skiffle music, Lonnie Donegan. Bella Fleck has a banjo version. Of course, Burl Ives, Jerry Reed, <laughs> uh, Ben Webster is a like a jazz sax player. Yeah. Jerry Reed, I'd be. I want to crack that down. Like, I like. I like Jerry Reed. Yeah, they there aren't a, that many of them available on iTunes, unfortunately, yeah. but or on uh, Spotify rather. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I had to go to YouTube to get the the Lead Belly version. What'd you think? Those, it's really good. It's interesting because they all appear to have slightly different lyrics. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's because it was like a, a folk song, but it uh, every one of them has. This seems the biggest. Uh, Discrepancy seems to be the name of the bridge okay. that they uh, that they caught John Hardy on. Yeah. So sometimes it's the Keystone Bridge, sometimes it's the Tombstone Bridge. It just uh, it it made me it made me Google the real John Hardy. And which which is it in in reality? Well, they didn't say that he was captured in Keystone County. Okay. Which makes me think it's Keystone is probably the makes sense the, the right answer. The whole phenomenon. I, so I can't remember. Have I proselytized you on um, Marcus Gray's book about London calling? It's called Route 19 Revisited. Uh, there's a, <laughs> the secu- we have a security threat. <laughs> there's, there's some woofing. Hold, hold on one second. Sure, we're going to pause. Okay, security crisis dealt with. That's right. The dog, is, the dog has been placated with a buffalo treat. <sighs> Only the finest. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, this book, Route 19 Revisited, it's uh, this guy, Marcus Gray, writing in just crazy detail about London Calling, just like every aspect of the making of the album that you can go into. And part of it is he just, he goes deep down the rabbit hole of each of the songs on it. Um, that was, you know, kind of a model here. Um, so the Clash song, Wrong and Boyo, starts out with like the... They start playing this old bad man ballad called Stagger Lee. And there's just there's this great chunk of the book then where Gray goes into the history of Stagger Lee, the song, and how it's based on a real event that happened around the same time the real John Hardy thing did. And it also like split into all these different versions. Uh, you know, so everyone records it with different versions and they all contain some traces of the real story. Um, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me how there's this repeating thing that like, if you were the right kind of bad dude in the 19th century, <laughs> these songs would, you know, grow out of whatever you did. And yeah, it just amazes me. Like, cause, and this is just me being jaded by modern society. I'm reading about it. And I'm like, what, why is this such a big deal? Like he, he got in a drunken dispute in a craps game and murdered somebody like seems pretty for the course. He's a desperate little man. He carried two guns every day. Yeah, well, I mean, 
didn't one of the sex pistols murder somebody with a knife? That's debatable. <laughs> that depends on what you choose to believe. I well, so I one thing that I think is interesting, like the uncle. So you know, each version has their own own lyrical approach, and there's like some some of the lyrics carry over. The Uncle Tupelo version, I understand they had to keep it tight since it's a punk album and not a folk album, but uh, it's not a, not a lot of like narrative heft to the, the tale Uncle Tupelo tells. Yeah, they they did sort of cut her down. The, the interesting thing I guess I took from it is how distinct the bass part is yes. in the Uncle Tupelo version. Yeah. Like, like, I don't know if it's just the way they mixed it or if they intentionally wanted that kind of that really loud bass forward sound. That's yeah. I, that, that's absolutely a thing I wanted to talk about. Like that's the only song on the album that's mixed like that. And it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's just totally different than anything else. Yeah. That's, it, it, you know, you'd think it'd be hard just not knowing personally Jay Farrar or Jeff Tweedy, but convincing Jay Farrar that you wanted a bass heavy mix would yeah. be very difficult. We're going to put you in the back. We're going to put me forward. But you know, like it's, it's one of the cooler Tweety bass parts on the album too. He's like bending notes and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's it doesn't sound like Jeff Tweety necessarily playing bass. Yeah. Now that you mention it, it really doesn't. It'd be kind of hilarious if we looked at the liner notes and he mm. didn't play bass. Yeah, <laughs> they switched instruments for that one, and that's why it's up. Well, the mix. Yeah, I don't know. The mix on that song is just it's interesting all the way around because you've got the the bass is super prominent, the guitar is pushed way back. And I had never really noticed this until I listened to it with headphones and just really paid attention. But Tweedy is harmonizing the whole way through. Um, and and he's, his voice is mixed way down most of the time, but it's there. And I don't think they do that on any other song on the album or any other, you know, official song on the album. They On some of the other outtakes they get to. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can put a pin on that for some of the, the later outtakes, but... Just to, to tee that up, I feel like Tweedy's voice on some of those outtakes is just really strange. Yeah. I think, you know, as we as we look ahead to next episode, this is pretty clearly a time when he's rapidly figuring out what the hell to do with his voice. And, like, sometimes he knows and sometimes he doesn't. And, you know, by the time we get to Still Feel Gone, like, he's kind of polished. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's weird. Like, this album seems... This album and its outtakes seem to just really catch him on the learning curve. Yeah, he certainly is. Uh, is certainly trying to to master his craft. Yeah, um, I mean, just conceptually, that's one of the things I kind of liked about having all the outtakes is you can kind of measure the pr- the progress of the song from sometimes the cassette demo <sighs> to the regular to the regular demo yeah. which i don't know if they recorded that on like an eight track or something or yeah, probably you know it's gonna vary a bunch but because uh, i think like the cassette demo is something that they recorded on like a cheap four track That's, or something right yeah. like it's and then they go to the next level and then you have the album track so you yeah. can kind of see their whether it's their progression or the producer's progression, yeah. it's uh, it's kind of fun yeah it, that that's the cool part of it like you know maybe they got the Maybe they improved the arrangement just by playing it live a ton. Maybe the producers are full of good ideas. You, know, you just you don't know. Do you, oh, go ahead. I mean, do you feel like the like if you have such a if you have such a you know a sound that you've been working on for so long, do you think the producer really adds to that? I think that's yeah, that, that's a huge question, and it it varies a ton from band to band. My guess is that the producers probably you know they definitely had an impact here but i i would guess that they didn't have a giant impact you know i think they if you hear just bootlegs of you know like just really early live recordings of uncle tupelo they basically this just seems to be what they sounded like and you know the the these producers seem to kind of work in that idiom anyway so you know it doesn't seem like i don't know like this doesn't you read about cases where the producer comes in and like orders the band around and you know makes them change the sound drastically to suit their their notion and that doesn't seem to be what's going on here it's uh i don't it reminds me in preparation for our dinosaur junior show i listened to the jay massis interview on uh, mark Marin, yeah. and he was talking about how 
Um, do you remember that band Buffalo Tom? Mm-hmm. Um, he they asked him to produce their first record yeah. uh, because I think they were both either at the University of Massachusetts at the same time or uh, Jay Mascus has had just graduated. Okay. And uh, he's, he said they brought like some kind of like chorus amp in and he's like, you can just leave that right outside. <laughs> so like, I feel like, I feel like he'd be a guy who'd be a little more heavy handed with yeah. the producing. I, which is odd because he plays essentially garage rock. Yeah. But you know, I, if you've got strong opinions and a chance to lay them down. Yeah. I, it's just, it's nuts to me how you, you hear, well, think of the Jayhawks, like, uh, what's the album called smile, you know? So like the Jayhawks had kind of their weird progression going, uh, you know, like their awesome weird progression where Mark Olson, you know, they, they've got their harmony country sound, Mark Olson leaves, they get kind of weird on sound of lies. And then for some reason, uh, when they go to make smile, they have to bring in this like classic rock producer, Bob Ezrin, who you can tell was just ordering them around the studio and changing shit. And like the album just sounds like this. Yeah. It sounds like a pop album or a, this is like a pop rock album. Yeah. It, it does not sound like the Jayhawks at all. And then they'd play this, they'd, they'd play those songs live and, yeah, and fantastic. Like, Jayhawks. like, you know, to me, like that's like the perfect example of a producer coming in and swinging his dick around too much. It's gotta be a weird headspace because you'd think, you know, musicians are pretty proud people um, and they're just, they're pretty single minded in their approach. So it's gotta be hard to talk them into, you know what you really want? What we really want you to do here is more of a jazz feel. Yeah. That's, I, I suppose like being a good producer, uh, aside from like having a good ear and good ideas, you gotta be, I think you would have to be a good diplomat. Yeah. To, like, talk people into, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting it's just an interesting question for me because I f- I wonder how much of how much of the sound you actually hear in a band is is influenced by the the band itself, which has got to be most of it. But pr- maybe there's some percentage of it that's that's production for sure. You know, especially I mean, if if you follow a given producer, sometimes you can kind of spot their sound. I remember just being. I, I guess this is going to be the episode where I talk about music books a bunch. But I remember reading. Um, so you want to be a rock and roll star by, I think his name's Jacob Schlichter. He was like the drummer for Semisonic. Yeah. I and think I read that book too. I like cards on the table. I hated that book. I mean, like I was glad to read it, but it just, it was like this entry into a view of the music world that I hated. Um, and part of it, he kept talking about how they wanted to work with his producer, Bob Clearmountain, who, you know, he was known as a hit maker. Um, and you know he had he has this special gimmick that he always puts in a pause in every song, and it's the Clear Mountain pause. And I don't know. I mean, to me, that just that seems like that seems like this awful like anti life thing that you're gonna hire a producer who has this gimmicky sound that he's gonna do for you, and OMG, he's gonna put in a pause. That offends my punk sensibilities. It's, it's, I mean, this is an extreme example, but it's, it's a little bit like having the Mona Lisa and then hiring some street performer to uh, paint beret, paint a beret <laughs> on top of it with your name on it or something. That's, um, that is a scene from Batman 1989 <laughs> when the Joker is rampaging through an art museum. It's fantastic. It's, uh, I guess my other example was there was a G.I. Joe episode where Cobra Commander built a giant laser to engrave his face on the moon. <laughs> which underrated plot line because like whoever came up with that should be, I don't know what the equivalent award of for G.I. Joe comics of an Oscar is, but I salute you, sir, ma'am. So the thing with Cobra Commander <laughs> is... You kind of never see his face. Yeah, so his face with the mask. Okay, it's branding, Keith. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, okay, John Hardy. Uh, one. Th- I feel like I haven't I haven't done my job in this podcast unless I've reduced Keith to just just shaking his head. Uh, uh, it's it's all it's all belly laughs. Um, but one thing I wanted to run by you, we've kind of talked about this before. We actually, we, 
nudged up against this at the start of the episode here. But so you said you thought that maybe the song was relegated to like bonus track status to keep it from getting too Carter family crazy. Uh, I remember in a previous episode, we also talked about the possibility that these old country covers were on to like help them stake out. No, we're a country band. We're not just dinosaur junior. I don't know. I mean, like I, I guess those two statements are kind of intention, but I feel like they might both be true. Yeah, I guess I'd have to know what the what the reasoning was for either including or including no depression, which makes sense because it's the title of the album, and excluding John Hardy, but then re-including it on the CD. Yeah, it's Uh, it's such a weird. You know, if we, I mean, we just got done talking about the band versus producers. That's that's a giant question there. Is like I in this case, I don't know who had the final call and what you know what songs made the album and what the sequence was. You know, I, usually it's like officially the producers, but the band has de facto veto power. But you know, each situation's different, and you don't really know. Maybe this maybe this was the producers just. They're like fuck you guys, we're putting this on only on CD. <laughs> we're gonna put, we're gonna uh, we're gonna put another country chops. I mean, the other interesting thing is the next song on the album is also a cover. You know, I wonder if they were, I wonder if they were conscious of you know not including too many cover songs. Yeah, on the vinyl. I think that's pretty. That's pretty reasonable. That's. I think it's a pretty common thing. I mean, like, I, I guess every band that I like that I've read about, so not Semisonic, boom! It's um, interesting that you have that thought of Semisonic, but you recognize Toolmaster of Brainerd as as high art. I honestly, I... <laughs> no lie, I struggled internally about that. Impossible. Like <sighs> anyway, what I was getting at... um a thing I read over and over when, when I'm reading about bands recording is that, you know, they'll go in and open up a recording session uh, by recording a bunch of covers. Like, I, I know The Clash did that. Um, I was just reading about R.E.M. doing that. Um, it's pretty easy to believe that that's how a lot of these Uncle Tupelo old country covers probably came into being. You know, that's, it's just it's a good way to, like, warm up and... Yeah, and it spices up your your live show a little bit. Like you know, yeah. it's it's kind of fun when when a band that you like throws in a a cover. Totally. I, I still think um, I don't actually think you were at this show, but the uh, we were at a Flaming Lips show at the Myth, yeah. uh, which was an awesome show. But they closed with a cover of uh, Moonlight Mile, um off the Sticky Fingers, Rolling yeah. Stone's Sticky Fingers album. And it's, it's a, to this day, one of my favorite covers that I've heard. That would be really cool. I, yes, I'm pissed that I missed that. That'd be, that song would be perfect for Coyne's voice too. Yeah, no, it was, it was really cool. Um, they did this kind of cool gimmick where they handed out laser pointers to everybody. And he, he came out in a white tuxedo with a giant, <laughs> like full length mirror. And like reflected the the laser beams back at everybody through the <laughs> fog. It was it was cool. That's fantastic. Um, you know, it's uh, for people not in the Minneapolis area. The the myth is kind of a, a scuzzy uh, club, but uh, people also call it meth. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. But oh. I mean, I think the, the so the discussion of the covers dovetails pretty well into the next song, which was. I th- I've got that it was an extra included on the 2003 reissue. That's uh, let's make sure we've got the same format here. You're talking left in the dark. Left in the dark, the song by the Vertebrates. I didn't know that was a cover, even. It it is, uh, and I I remember hearing it at a Sunvolt show at First Avenue, and they closed with it. And um, I mean, obviously, this is pre Spotify, so I you know I couldn't track it down. I didn't know what it was. Ah. And so um, when I listened to, as part of this project, listen to this, uh, listen to this song. I'm like, that's that song. Like I've, yeah. I've heard this song before. That's so, a cool feeling. Yeah. So I, I Googled it and went down the, 
went down the Vertebrates rap, rat hole um, and listened to their original, which has a grand total of 18,782 Spotify plays. <laughs> uh, but needless to say, uh, the Uncle Tupelo version is much better. It's really? It's much more rocking. The the original is more of a, like, it sounds almost like, even though it was recorded in the 80s, like a 50s, 60s style. Okay. Uh, almost like uh, just almost straightforward pop song. Yeah. With the Uncle Tupelo version, do you get the sense that, uh, like, I felt like the productions, the production felt kind of undercooked. Like, it, you know, it was obvious they had recorded it in a pro studio. Like, it wasn't a boombox recording. But it didn't seem like it had been fussed with at all, you know. Like it seemed kind of clear that early on they're like, "Okay, yeah, that's that's not going on the album. We're not gonna." Yeah, I wonder if it's I wonder if it's like too punk sounding. I wonder if that yeah. was their thinking, because when you look at the lyrics, like the lyrics are pretty straightforward. Like at the end, they're just saying "left, left in the dark, right in the dark," but the way that they the way that Ferrar does the intonation is really cool. So it, yeah. it, you really, you get the, the feeling in his voice. Yeah. It's weird. I feel like the, the pacing feels a little weird. Like, you know, you say it feels punk. It, to me, it feels like it's like punk, but it wants to, it, it's like a punk who just got up with a hangover. <laughs> like, it, it, to me, the song feels like it wants to push it harder and just, you know, there's like, I don't know. It feels held back slightly. Yes, that's that's a fair critique, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, not not knocking it. It's it's good, but it just I don't know. It felt felt not quite as rocking. What uh, what did you think about the lyric? There's a live wire burning near my front tire. That's a good line. I'm really coming to appreciate just like good couplets. I think like that that matters to me more than than if the song, you know, like occasionally people will write a song that's just great lyrics top to bottom. And when they do, it's fantastic. But I, you know, I really think like if you can have a song with two or three memorable lines, like you're doing pretty well with just with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about bands that were popular uh, when I was in college in the, the mid nineties and like those bands would kill for one or two good couplets. Like yeah. it was like, Find something that kind of rhymes and then throw some alternate guitar around it. Yeah. Cut, print. Maybe get, you know, maybe deliver it with kind of a mushy mouth so people, you know, people can argue about what exactly you're trying to say. You can be kind of enigmatic. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at some of the bands that are still kicking around the casino circuit, like, <laughs> you know, Everclear, uh, uh, The Offspring, you know, like, like these are not these are not great lyrical minds no, at work. Nobody's kicking back thinking of all the great offspring couplets. Exactly. Or Stone Temple Pilots. Right. I mean, these and these bands were hugely popular. Huh? I was just reading actually I was reading I I keep bringing up REM too. Um but I was reading this thing where Peter Buck in REM was talking about how they had this approach that they looked at the voice as just another instrument in the mix. Um, and so they really consciously did just think like a good line or two would be like a good guitar run. And, and, you know, they'd focus on that way more than, than writing top to bottom lyrics. And so a couple of REM songs, you know, have, have, we think they have static lyrics because we hear them on an album. But like, if you listen to the, you know, just the the history of live performances, like like Radio for Europe, like the words are a little different every time because the words, most of the words don't matter. And there's just a couple of lines that uh, Stipe wants to deliver, you know, because those are the good lines. And I don't know, that's just, that's thinking of the voice as an instrument more than a thing communicating words. It's just this interesting idea. It makes me think a lot of what we were talking about with Jay Farrar, you know, because his voice, you know, like he, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but he kind of works in that vein where like his voice is one of the instruments in Uncle Tupelo. And, and a lot of times, like, you know, as we've talked about these songs, I keep going back to like, well, this, this was a good two lines. This is a good two lines. And like, sometimes even in decades of listening to the song, I hadn't actually listened to the words as like a standalone poem. Yeah, you know, early on, I feel like Ferrar is using his voice as an instrument and Tweedy is just kind of singing. And then, you know, and that changes. It does. And I 
think they both get to a place where they're both using their voice as an instrument. But yeah. Farrar obviously started quite a bit farther ahead. Yeah. It, interestingly, didn't uh, Peter Buck produce uh, one of the later Uncle Tupelo albums? He did. Mm-hmm. And I was going to bring this up when we were talking about producers going overboard. I, I have this theory that uh, around then Peter Buck was, I don't know, owed money to a mandolin dealer or something. <laughs> Because that's like... I hope that's true. Like, around then is when R.E.M. albums just get drenched in mandolin. And, uh, you know, a little bit before then, he had been showing up on uh, Replacements, Let It Be, and there's some mandolin there. Um, You know, and then uh, Uncle Tupelo comes and he produces them. And I was reading that, like, they brought Brian Henneman along and made him learn the mandolin (laughs) for that album because Peter Buck wanted some goddamn mandolin. Hey, and now Brian Henneman knows how to play the mandolin. Right. Everybody wins. You know, Buck's I, I have not heard off. any mandolin on any Bottle Rockets record to date, but... <laughs> it's it's very distorted electric mandolin. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I hope there is some, like, nefarious deal where Peter Buck was trying to prop up the... Sort of prop up the mandolin market. Like, he, he had bought stock in some mandolin company. <laughs> He's just desperately... I'm gonna turn. Time. I'm gonna turn the tide. <laughs> I'm gonna make this of this going mainstream. 1992 is gonna be the year of the Mando. You know, not not too far off though. Like, I mean, maybe 10 years off when the like kind of the jam band yeah. scene. Like, there's, you know, they're always looking for a mandolin player. Yeah, you know, he he was planting seeds then. They just took a while. To That's like, right. That's how investments work, Keith. You don't you don't recognize your money right away. <laughs> He's a long haul investor. Wanna uh wanna jump ahead to I Got Drunk? Yeah, let's do it. That's I, uh oh go ahead. I I guess I have one thing to put out just into the universe that I grabbed the cords and the tabs off of gumbo pages. Yeah. And the uh the guy who did the cords is a is a gentleman named Todd Swenson. Okay. T O D one D. And his email address is tswenson at metro2k12.mn.us. <laughs> so props to you for A, using your work address, and B, working, working the tabs while you're working at a school. Like, <laughs> I salute you, sir. <laughs> that man is a true educator. For I got drunk is the best part. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> well, it's K, it's K through 12. I mean, <laughs> fair enough. It's not, I mean, he's not an animal. It's not like it's a preschool. For me, like, this song being on, you know, oh, I guess we never, we should have made this clear at the top of the, uh, at the top of the show that um, we're working with the uh, legacy edition of No Depression is where we're getting our running order here. So that's, uh, it was. I don't know when it was released, but it's on Spotify too. And it's just, it's No Depression with all the bonus tracks. Um <sighs> Way back when, you know, I just had the No Depression CD, I I spent a good three or four years knowing that there was an Uncle Tupelo song called I Got Drunk um, and thinking that that was just, that sounded like the perfect Uncle Tupelo song. Uh, you know, but I back then I couldn't track it down. I couldn't hear it. And it, it's just weird to me that now, like, that's just, this is just an option on Spotify. Yeah, I mean, the the whole world is is an option. Like if I yeah. had, I found out when I heard that song that it, the, I, the uh, left in the dark, that it was a vertebrate song. Like I would have had to go to the record store and try to find one of their CDs to buy. Yeah. You know, now it's, it's uh, allows me just to go straight down that rabbit hole and, and you know, yeah. chew up an hour of my day. It's a good but way to chew an hour. I do feel like I got drunk hits on a lot of the classic uncle Tupelo themes at least from this album yeah small you know, towns suck yeah drinking misery after effects <laughs> of drinking yeah. i thought the song sounded legendary back then I, I liked it a lot when i finally did hear it now i kind of give them props for like the very direct title and it's a great title but uh yeah it's not you know once again not a super healthy headspace this thing's describing it and also not not a super like like we were talking about really good couplets, not yeah. uh, 
it's either not a good example of that or a perfect example of that because it's the simplest song I think they've ever recorded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got drunk and I fell down. Isn't really like, like I, I can appreciate it. There's kind of, there's an awesomeness to just how like it is, but it's not, it doesn't really scream high art. And, and somehow the, even though they're just singing, I got drunk and I fell down, like they're harmonizing with each other. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool. Yeah. If you can put aside the, you know, kind of the, the message that, you know, like these guys are a bunch of idiots <laughs> or maybe they're, maybe they're talking. This is our, our ongoing question. Are they praising this type right. of behavior or are they, are they using it as a cautionary tale? I, I, I think this song is pretty clearly praising that the that chorus is triumphant. It it does feel pretty affirmative. There's also some lyric mangling in this one too, or some English language syntax mangling. Um, something like I fell to floor because the would just fuck up the scansion. Yeah, I think I think it's until I felt the floor. <sighs> okay, <laughs> I love the running theme here of. <laughs> You actually looking at the lyrics and me just going with like, yeah, they're saying this. Yeah, it's but, you know, I, I I'm taking a more literal approach, and and you're uh, you're more like jazz. Death of the author, man. Death of the author. Anyway, I think the band sounds like a just, you know, words whatever. The the band sounds like a diesel motor on this song. Like they are just chugging. Yeah, it's you know, it's I'm torn because like a it's one of those. It's one of those songs where if you were listening to it and somebody came in, they'd be like, what, what are you doing? Like, what, what's the plan here? What went wrong? Yeah. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're this middle-aged guy listening to this song about getting drunk and falling down. Like it, <laughs> but I'm like, no, no, I really like the harmonizing when they're talking about getting drunk. <laughs> it's like reading Playboy for the articles. Like it, it just, it, it just sounds nonsensical, but like there probably is somebody who's like, the, I mean, the pros in these advice columns are just amazing. <laughs> if nothing else, I think you just named the episode. <laughs> why do you think this isn't why do you think this is an outtake and not on the album? You know, honestly, I think they probably felt like they had too many songs about drinking. Yeah. And was, you know, the consequences of drinking. Said what needed to be said. You know, it's you can you can only talk about, you know, getting hammered and well, I mean, we know you can talk about getting hammered and waking up in a ditch and a gutter. So, I mean, you know, after you've, after you've set that tone, like falling on the floor seems pretty innocuous. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is just little league. So maybe that's it. it it's not hardcore enough for the, for the album. <laughs> I think you're right. Want to jump onto Sin City? Yeah. Sin City. So this, I guess was a little troubling to me because I really like this song as a Graham Parsons flying burrito brothers song. Yeah. But something just doesn't work for me on this uncle Tupelo version. hundred percent with you. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's like they're not harmonizing. They're singing two different parts. Yeah. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And maybe I'm used to them harmonizing and that's, but it just, I don't know. As I was listening to it today, it was just driving me crazy. Like the, because it's such a great song, yeah. right? Like it's yeah, the, the Burrito Brothers version is like one of the perfect songs. It's uh, and it's so it's just a little disappointing to to you know play a song by you know, obviously a, a band they really respected, and then just you know train wreck it. Yeah, I I yeah I spent a while today trying to think about what like what it's missing, and you know I I think part of it. Like, it's pretty clear that they didn't, you know, okay, so the Burrito Brothers version, Parsons is harmonizing with himself. Yeah. And you want to talk about blood harmony, like, there, there's no one you can harmonize with better than yourself. Uh, you know, for R and Tweedy, it sounds like they're just kind of guessing at harmony parts and not always hitting them. And so that's part of it. And, like, the song is produced so minimally, you know, it's just an acoustic. There's no no drums, no bass. So there's nothing to hide behind, you know, and like any weakness in the harmonies are just there to be naked. Then they've got a harmonica bringing in. And like, this made me realize that I I can't respect the, this is a failing of mine. Like, I know I'm wrong about this, 
but I can't respect the harmonica as an instrument. It's a sound effect. I feel like you're going to have to get that blues traveler tattoo removed <laughs> with that attitude. I, I, I hadn't thought of this, but blues traveler might be why I feel this way. I guess I, I can't say I was a huge blues traveler fan, but I, I did think it was cool that the guy had the vest with all the har- all the different harmonicas on it. I feel like that was. Like, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Man, what's your beef with a good vest? It's you know, functional. It's stylish. It's lacking sleeves. You tell that to Han Solo. <laughs> Unbelievable. I regret no, nothing. I, yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I wonder. That's that's interesting because, uh, like, you know, you're a Bob Dylan fan. You're a Neil Young fan. Yeah. Both of which. Like to dip their toe in the harmonica. Sure, and it's great, uh, but I feel like in their songs, it it's there as a sound effect. It's not there as like an instrument that is like a serious part is being played on. You know, it's like if you get the chaosolator out and you go like, you know, it's a cool sound effect, but it's not. It's not like a guitar. So is it, this is back to the rot rock rule. <laughs> That's exactly what I felt. <laughs> it, it, it can't rock if it has a harmonica <laughs> as the main part. Exactly. Rot. Okay. Well, it's important <laughs> It's important to have a construct. That's, you know, this isn't the Wild West. There that's, have to be rules. That's right. We gotta, gotta. Also a lot of, just for the record, a lot of uh, harmonica in the Wild West from the movies <laughs> that I've seen. Very true. And no one talks about the great music scene in the Wild West. Case rested. Harmonica genocide is the reason for that. <laughs> oh, one thing I was thinking with Sin City being here, I mean, like you can see why this one's an outtake. Yeah, because it sucks. <laughs> that would be why. You know, but early on, I, I, I think like first episode, you brought out a quote from them from this time period talking about the Flying Burrito Brothers being on their minds then. And, and I remember we were, we were like, oh yeah, you don't hear that, but like, well, here's the proof. Clearly, the Flying Burrito Brothers were on their mind if they were covering their songs in the studio. Yeah, and, so and the I joke's get, on us. I get the appeal because it's you know it's it's a really cool song, and you know, like there there are a lot of uh, you know, there's another great uh, Burrito Brothers song with a Hot Burrito Two ah. that a number of people have tried to cover. There's an Elvis Costello cover of it. Uh, there's a Frank Black cover of it. Oh, that's right. And you know, like it's just not, they just don't hit the mark. Like, yeah. so there's, there's an appeal to covering them. Um, it's just, you know, like the, those songs are so good on their own. It's just a really high, it's a really high benchmark. Yeah. That's there's, there's people who just do what they do. So specifically that trying to cover them is it's a fool's game. That's why you don't see me out there trying to cover meatloaf. <laughs> Man's a genius. You see, ironically, I would do anything for love, but I won't cover meatloaf. <laughs> I wish I had one of those horn, like that old timey car horn. <laughs> I deserved that. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, the last note I've got for Sin City is that I wish they had given this another shot in the anodyne sessions. You know, like full band, matured, yeah. know what they're doing. I, I think they could have crushed this then, or at least done a better job of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have that would be, that's an interesting idea. I guess I hadn't yeah. thought about it. Uh, if perhaps a more seasoned version of the band would do a better job with this song, yeah. maybe that's it. It's like too much, too fast. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Going sequentially through the... Oh, I guess, do you have anything else? I, I don't. Going sequentially through the album, then it's just a bunch of demo versions of songs we've already talked about. And we've even tonight already talked about the utility of listening to demo versions of songs we've already talked about. And then it just kind of trails out. Uh, there's a couple of cassette demos from 1987. And the only note I've got for that is not super fun to sit down and listen to Pickle River is fucking painful. <laughs> and I'll stand by that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't get a whole lot out of Pickle River. I did yeah. actually like the the Blues Die Hard song. Yeah. Um, I thought that was kind of a... 
I think with some tinkering, that could be a good J for our rocker. I had a moment of excitement where I, you know, looking at the date and thinking about the history of the band, I really briefly thought that maybe that was Wade or Dade singing, but... That, that would be awesome if that were true. I, I don't think that's true. I wish. So um, this is going to make me sound like a Dinosaur Jr. super fan, which I assure you I'm not, although I do like them. But I also listened to the uh, Lou Barlow uh, oh. podcast, who's the bass player yeah. in Dinosaur Jr. and who doesn't speak to Jane Mascus. Um, <laughs> they, they speak through the drummer, <laughs> which seems healthy. Yeah. But uh, he is really into uh, like lo-fi recording. Yeah. Um, he's got another band called Sebado. Yep. Which I always assumed was like a death metal band. <laughs> it is not. It's a, yeah. it's a, uh, it's kind of a lo-fi alt rock band. And he talked about kind of one of the reasons he likes to record on cassette is because you get the, the ghosts of the machine. Like you get the hisses and the, and so, you know, as I'm listening to the cassette single versions, I was trying to think of it, think of it through that lens. And, um, I guess I'm just a snob because I feel like all I hear is noise. Yeah. Like I just hear inefficient recording yep it just sounds messy so i was in this headspace where i'm like i'm gonna really enjoy listening to these cassette recordings and <laughs> it, it just didn't pan out for me we can't all be lou barlow this is true but you might have a better chance of actually talking to jay maskers than he does <laughs> now sebado is a wild thing too like they never i i could never that that graft never took for me but i I used to work with a guy who was just like, like the way people get about fish, this guy was about Sebado. Well, they have like a a zillion recordings, right? Like it's, it's, uh, and I, I mean, it's not like I'm anti lo-fi. No. I like, you know, like I like guided by voices. I'm like, I I can get down with some lo-fi. It just, when I listened to it on Spotify, it just didn't, uh, didn't take for me. Yeah. I guess as we wind her down, do you have any just thoughts about no depression as a whole? Yeah, man, I think I liked it better than I thought I was going to. I liked it better than I remembered liking it. Yeah, same. Um, I remember thinking uh, when I listened to it that, yeah, it's cool because they're young and there's a lot of energy, but I think it's a better record than I gave it credit for. Yeah. It's hard when you try to stack it up against Anodyne. Yeah. um, Which is a really, really good record. Yeah, it's weird because like, I guess just going on the merits, it's their worst record, but it's only because each of their records gets better and better. Yeah, know? it's like being the it's like being the worst Monet haystack painting. Yeah, like it's still a really good fucking painting. Yeah, just because nine point seven is higher than nine point six doesn't mean that nine point six is a low number. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh, I guess the the one thing I did want to want to bring up to you is I don't know if you listen to all of the all of the demo tracks. But the the that year demo has like this weird banjo part that uh, isn't on the album. Yeah, and it, it just it remind maybe it's like your Peter Buck and the mandolin because it sounds like they're like this is a country album. We need to add some more banjo. <laughs> We're damn well, putting a banjo in there. And then someone, whether it was the band or the producer, was like, you know what, this song would be a lot better if you just <laughs> shit can the banjo. I think that's a, I, I mean, I know that's a trap that's really easy to fall in. Well, I know that was a trap that was really easy to fall into when you were trying to chase the Uncle Tupelo sound. That, you know, like, hey, the more country instruments we can throw in, the better. Regardless of if we know how to actually use this instrument. You know, like, not even, not just know how to play it, but know how to, like, employ it in a mix well. And, you know, so, like, I I don't know. I sat through all kinds of shows where some other band had a banjo that they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And, it's uh, a hard instrument to play, isn't it? It's yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess it's not any harder than a guitar, but learning to play it isn't enough. You also need to know how to employ it, you know, like just, I don't know. It's, it's not a guitar and you don't use it like a guitar and you, you can't just like tack on a part, I don't know. It's the same way with like all the shitty sitar parts that 
We're like popping up in late 60s. Thanks a lot, Robbie Shankar. <laughs> Fucking asshole. Dick. I will, where was, I was just, I'm not going to derail us with this, but I was reading somewhere about him being a dick, but I can't remember where I was reading that. I was just making that up. I, I just assumed he, assumed he was a really chilled out guy. No, I guess he was kind of a dick. Um, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, No Depression. Pretty good album. Solid, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, really fun to go back. Like, I, I would recommend that. Like, if you haven't yeah. listened to it in a while, just go back and, and you know, listen to it uh, listen to it straight through. It's, it's yeah. kind of fun. And pay attention. I mean, like, for me, like, the, the nice thing about this project was this is such a fast album that it's easy for it to just whoosh by you. And, like, this made me sit down and listen piece by piece in a way that I haven't usually. And, like, you just... I appreciated it way more doing it that way. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Well. On to the next. Yeah. Next stop. Still feel gone. And uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening. I'm Keith. Uh, you can find me online or on Twitter at, uh, at Keith Pilly. That's at K-E-I-T-H-P-I-L-L-E. And I'm Chad Cook. And you can find me on Twitter at Cook. C-O-O-K-6252. And uh, if anybody you know, if anybody has any other Uncle Tupelo recordings that they would like for us to hear, we'd love that. Yeah, that, props uh, to whoever uh, sent you that, uh, that uh, Cortez the Killer. That was awesome. That was a cool thing to do. Uh, we'd also, we'd just love to hear from you if there's anything, uh, anything you said, that anything we said that you like or don't like. Um Please spread the word about the show if you dig it at all. Um, you know, person to person is cool. Social media is cool. It always helps us in the search results at Apple. If you go out and, you know, rate us or leave a review or do whatever. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Talk to you again soon. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Bye. Man, that was a creepy sign off. <laughs> Bye.